after you write your first hit song, everyone around you is applauding. Oh my God, that's amazing. That's amazing. It's as if you won the lottery and everyone is going, oh my God, John, you won the lottery. Do it again. And I'm like, uh. So how does the founding member of one of the biggest bands of the last few decades create such incredible music enjoyed literally by hundreds of millions of people around the world while living a life that is privately falling apart? And what would make him stop in his tracks, turn everything around, do the work to start putting all the pieces back together to produce not just iconic music, but also a grounded, fulfilling life? That's where we're going in today's best of conversation with the founding member, frontman, and guitarist for the iconic band, the Goo Goo Dolls, John Resnick. Born and raised in Buffalo, New York, John is a legend in the world of music with 19 top 10 singles, including mega hits like Iris, which spent 12 months on the Billboard charts, Name, Black Balloon, and countless others. And like so many who turned to music at a young age as both a way to cope with discord and a form of expression, he's lived a life of extraordinary artistry and contribution, and along with that, a certain amount of darkness and struggle that for many years found him turning to alcohol as a way to get through each day, until it all fell apart, and he had to make a decision, one that he made and continues to make every single day. Now sober, a devoted dad and husband, he's telling a new story with his life in music and taking the giant global community of Goo Goo Dolls fans along for the journey. And as you'll hear, he's been in the studio creating something that is truly representative, not just of this moment in time, but also of how his own personal lens on life and music and creativity have evolved. So excited to share this best of conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So 
I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. It was fun reading um, that little bit that you shared uh, just uh, in info with us before that you've been geeking out a bit on Dalton Trumbo and um, yeah. sort of like the Blacklist era stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it was funny because I, when I read that, Dalton Trumbo's, his book, Johnny Got His Gun, yeah. I read, I think I read in high school. Yeah. And it blew my mind. It absolutely sort of like shattered me in these really weird ways and it's never left me. Yeah. No, it's really. It's yeah, that's a, that's that's a heavy, heavy book, and the film too is strange. Yeah, to me, I was like, I saw the film, and I'm like, why do I feel so uneasy? This is yeah. really strange. But but I, um, my favorite thing about Dalton Trumbo is um, just how beautifully he uses words, like you know. And it, I, have a, I have a book by him. It's out of print, but you can still find them online of course it's called additional dialogue mm. and it's a it's this big book of letters that he wrote to all kinds of people and like whenever i'm trying to find something if i have to write like a quote or something for whatever or somebody wants a blurb for this i always go to that book and i'll just read a few of his letters because the way he uses language and um and you know you steal little bits of what Trumbo said, you know? Yeah. It's very cool. Such an eloquent character. Yeah. You know? And, and I mean, what he went through, um, <laughs> you know, the, the whole, the blacklist era, we had, um, Ellen Harper on, on the podcast, a, a little while back, Ben Harper's mom, but she's also this mm-hmm. kind of icon in the folk music space. And, and, um, her parents started out the Claremont folk music center, um, which became like, you know, this hub where everyone was hanging out. But um, originally they started out in New England and her dad was a, a school teacher, but early in his life, he was very public about being a member of the communist party and it mm. caught up with him. And like Trumbo and so many of that day, he got blacklisted and he couldn't find a job teaching anywhere. So he started wow. working on old instruments and that was like the gateway into that whole world for them. Cause he just, he couldn't find work, you know, for a yeah. long time doing what he wanted to do. It's really a crazy window in our country. I think, I mean, it was, it's really... <laughs> It was just so bizarre because it was such a, it was just like taking democracy and just smashing its face against the wall, you know, just to gain some political power. And like, but I was so, I, I, he's, Trump is an inspiration to me because he took a bad situation and he, I mean, he did what he had to do to feed his kids and he, um, you know, he came out on top. And I, and what really amazed me too, because I, I'm a Kirk Douglas fan, <laughs> but I never, I, I have so much more respect for him because he was like, no, you could put Trumbo's name on the movie and on um, Spartacus. Yeah. And uh, wow. I mean, can you imagine having to face all that persecution and still generate so many scripts and stories and just write these, this, these brilliant letters to people. People should read letters. 
There's got to be more great books. I'm sure there's a million great books of letters that people have collected. Yeah, there's um, – I actually want to say the name of the book is called The Book of Letters. Mm-hmm. It's written by um, Maria Popova, who um, has this longstanding website called Brain Pickens. And she created this massive digest of all of these letters written by all these amazing writers over the years. Yeah. But I agree. I think there's something – about letters that we've moved away from email, text, everything is sort of like short form, not deep. There's something also about, I'm curious how you feel about this, about the physical act of writing, not typing on a keyboard, but literally just sitting I, there. I never do that. Never oh, no that. kidding. So t- yeah. tell me more about that. I mean, I write emails and all that yeah. nonsense on the search for things on the internet. But when I'm writing songs or if I really, well, I make lists. I'm a big list maker. And I can't do it in my phone because it's just not tangible. Like if I, I have a to-do list, you know, you know, I have to go buy salt for the driveway and, you know, make sure you get milk. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, finish the bridge to that song, you know, and just things like that. I need them on paper because I can, because I just fold up. It has to be yellow legal paper. Now I'm getting into how like neurotic I am, uh, which is... Kind of strange, but my yellow legal pad and and pencil on the on the paper, fold it, put it in my pocket, and I'm so much more efficient with that than I am with having a little bell ring on my phone. I just it's not for me. I think it's I think that has something to do with my age, you know, because because I mean I was around when you could buy a Mac book 150 i think it was called yeah. <laughs> the 150 i had one <laughs> it was like i mean it's just it's like i don't it almost looks like a like a piece of steampunk art right, right. now you know compared to everything else yeah it, it's pretty amazing i mean when you're when you're working on um songs too is it is it all um by hand on paper as well yeah 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 gotta be gotta be and you know uh big stacks of uh, books of quotations mm. and and uh, thesauruses, rhyming dictionaries, you know, just just stuff like that. I, there's this one online rhyming dictionary that I that I love, but you know, just going going to places like that. But yeah, it's got to be on paper, and every album, all the lyrics and all the potential lyrics and everything, wind up in one of those art folios, mm. you know, those big fake leather yeah, yeah, yeah. things, you know. And it's just stuffed with scraps of paper and napkins and post-it notes and legal pads. Yeah. And that's the home for every album, you know, once it's done. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I feel like the output is just different, you know. And actually there's research that shows that when you're when especially in the when you're in a creative state, that what comes out when you write it, you know, physically by hand, it's different than if you type. It sort of activates your brain differently. You you go to different I agree. places. Well, because you're you're creating, I mean, you have these built-in neural pathways between your brain, your thought, then the part of your brain that physically can make it come out your hand and put it down on a piece of paper. And um, I think it does. I think I always find, I always find myself getting more inspiration and good stuff out of, out of physically doing it the old way. You know, I mean, once again, I'm so old. You know, I went, I went to Catholic school 
for nine years. And um, we took um, penmanship classes. We had, we had to do penmanship. So it's like when, when I see somebody who has beautiful handwriting, I'm just blown away by it. College destroyed my handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I kind of joke around about here, let me, let me sign that prescription for you and see if you can get anything for it. You know, cause my handwriting, it looks like, it looks like a seismograph during an earthquake. Yeah. Somehow I ended up in the same place as you. We're the same age. So yeah. I had like that same training, you know, and, and uh, yeah. it all kind of went away over the years. Um, but I'm a writer also. And I've really been itching to get back to actually more of a physical process of creation. There was, um, I was talking to uh, actually two writers, uh, Suleika Jawad and um, Neil Gaiman. They both mm-hmm. write longhand and they use um, fountain pens. Wow. And one of the reasons is because if you stop writing with a fountain pen for too long, it starts to clog. Uh-huh. So it forces you to keep writing. Like you can't just pause. It's wow. like you have to channel whatever's in your head out onto the page or else it gets all gunky. Yeah. So and and because of that, that like that really gentle time pressure, it's almost like they feel like it changes the creative process and the output for them. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. I'll have to get a fountain. I'll have to get a fountain <laughs> pen. Because if I have my way, it'd take me nine years to make one album. <laughs> but it's interesting that you say that because this this new album that I'm working on, it's it's very loose. I don't, I, you know, I, I'm locking out a recording studio for about five months. So I'm going to actually do a lot of the writing in the studio. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And I think that that kind of, um, you know, I, I got the budget for the album and I'm like, let's blow it all, you know? (laughs) And, um, so I don't want to be overly prepared when I go in because I'm interested to, to see what the interaction between the musicians is going to be like, and I'm just going to produce this myself, you know, or, uh, you know, I'll probably co-produce with a couple other guys in the band and that, but there are ways to make records. There's different methodology. One is you go in and you get your drums all perfect. That's when you don't have a lot of money. You got to go in and you do drums for like three days. You got all the drums for your album, but then it becomes this very sort of assembly line type thing. You know, and a lot of, a lot of producers and engineers are very, very, they're addicted to editing Mm. now. Now, because everything has to be so precisely on the grid. Yeah. It's like everything, it's syncopation. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, no, no, we'll start with click and we're going to play like a band because I was, I was listening to a lot of live recordings of us. And then I was listening to our studio albums and I was just like, the energy on the live stuff is way better. It's more aggressive and it's, it's, um, it's just got more teeth and, mm. it's, and it's really visceral. So I want to try to capture what the band is actually performing. And I don't want a producer coming in and chopping it to bits and, you know, trying to like make it radio friendly. You know? Yeah. I'm just, I'm just not interested in it anymore. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like everything has been so engineered these days. And, you know, every voice is auto-tuned. Every beat is, is you know, like dropped into a perfect syncopation. Yeah. That, um, But I feel like the as human beings, there's something in us that yearns for like, 
We want to hear when you're slightly ahead of the beat and slightly behind the yeah. beat. We want to hear when somebody's voice is cracking or slightly off. Cause like, oh, yeah. so th- there's a human being there. And, and we want to hear when people are just going into their own vibe. And I feel like yeah. when that's edited out, which, which it is a lot these days, it is, you know, okay. Much. So you get quote perfection, but you lose what music is about fundamentally. It loses its humanity. You know, and I'm guilty of it too. You know, I'm I'm guilty of it too. We all fell victim to when everything went digital. We were like, wow, the sky's the limit. And then all of a sudden, the other thing, the other thing, just jumping back to doing the album, well, what I want to do with this album is limit the amount of tracks that we have. Mm. Because now it's not uncommon to have a digital audio session that's like 130 tracks yeah. <laughs> and it's like that's absurd right i remember the old task m4 track in the bedroom it's like yeah there you was know, something to that bounce it down and there there was a vibe to that you know but you know kind of kind of limiting your track count limiting your options i i just think that the digital production thing it had to happen and in in the good side the the upside to it is it it's like now you can get programs that are free or practically free. I mean, people are making records on Logic and GarageBand yeah. and Cubase or whatever. And um, you don't need the $20,000 Pro Tools rig with the, you know, the six computers chained together and just, you know, it's, but I think that the technology is leading the creation of the art rather than the creation of the art pushing technology forward. I think it flipped when we went digital, you know, and it's like you almost get caught up in the tyranny of choice. It's just like, there's so many options. What do I do? So in a sort of a, I don't know what it would be, a contrary sort of way of looking at it. I'm just like, you know, yeah, you got three or four different compressors there. You got, it's all wonky studio stuff. But what I'm trying to do is just make it more vital. You know, I mean, I'm getting older and, and, uh, I just, I just, you know, when you're a musician and you do this, I've been doing this since I was 19. Right. And it's weird because I never said no to anything because you get this thought in your head. Well, this could be the last time you ever get up on stage, or this could be the last time you ever get up in front of the camera. So don't say no. This might be the last dollar you ever earned doing this. So I don't say no very much, but now I've started to a little bit. But not say no, but be a little more selective about what I want to do. And this whole anxiety about, you know, I had to change my metrics of what success is because it was always like, okay, did we hit the top 20 on the chart? That was one of those things. And I admit it, you know, I mean, because... I've had hits and I have not had hits and it's really nice to have hits. You know, it's like, it's really nice to have a hit song. It's fun, but it's interesting. But so we're going to, we're going to sort of limit it. And there's one example that I would like to tell everybody about. If you want to hear the most amazing song that is so out of time and so out of key, go back and listen to the Rolling Stones Street Fight. Oh my God, I can't believe you said it because I was just going to say, <laughs> I mean, not necessarily that song, but I remember hearing some old live studio sessions from the Stones when they were putting songs uh-huh. together. 
Oh yeah. And it was, I mean, massively collaborative. And I mean, at the end of the day, they were really working to create amazing stuff, but also yeah, they were less concerned about perfection. They were more concerned about like feel. It was all about the feel and the sway and like humans, when they move, they sway, you know, and you're really feeling it. You see that, you know, in people who are having religious experiences or in flow at a concert or something, you know, it's just, and it's interesting to see that because you're trying to get into this. You're trying to tap into some sort of primal part of people, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that the, the idea of sway, because when you're, you know, so part of the aspiration is like, okay, so let's create something where we can try and bring that energy to everybody who listens to this. But at the same time, you're creating originally in the studio. And so it's almost like you and and the musicians who you're in session with, you feeling that, like you feeling this way becomes oh, becomes yeah. the signal that, oh, like I think we're getting it. I think we're we're going there. Yeah. And then what it's going to entail is, you know, me and Robbie, the bass player, and, you know, a drummer just hanging out in the studio and just jamming and just making noise and trying to capture it on a some kind of a recorder and uh, and sort of building it from there, you know, because that's something that we used to do when we were kids because it was all really very, very DIY. Like our whole scene was so, you know, and, um, you know, we would just play. For hours, I would come in with an idea and we would play it and play it and play it. And then I would go, oh, wait a second. I just thought of something. Let's go up to the minor here and then down there. And then and then it starts to build. And then the drum patterns evolve and everything evolves. And then you actually learn the song, you know. And that feel is just, I think it's just, it sounds fresh again. Mm. Because it is, I just believe that people are, fatigued from technology. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm right there with you. Um, I, I believe that also. I'm, I'm really excited to see what comes out of those sessions. Five months is a, five months is a luxurious <laughs> time also. I mean, it, that's <laughs> a great way to put, I got a luxury problem. Yeah, that, you gotta love that. Um, are you going to, yeah. are you recording to a uh, tape or to um, digital? Cause that's another really interesting creative constraint right there. Yeah. Well, it was interesting was we did that Christmas yeah. record which I know it's a Christmas record and people are like, yeah, it's cheesy. And I'm like, duh, like Pat Monahan is a friend. And he said, it's supposed to be cheesy. It's a Christmas record, you know? And he's such a light man. that guy is just, he's just his outlook on life and his ability to just make people feel great, you know? So I wanted to make that Christmas record. I, wa- I wanted to do it, you know, and part of it is because I have a four-year-old daughter, you know, and it doesn't look cool to do it, but I don't care. And I wanted to, but, but see then, because I'm obsessed with vintage recording equipment and I'm obsessed with vintage microphones, like every musician. And so I've gotten this really bad habit and <laughs> collection of, um, I can basically roll up anywhere with, you know, half a dozen road cases and make a record anywhere I want, you know, and I have mixing, I have small mixing consoles and I chain them together and uh, lots of old compressors and microphones and reverbs and things like that. But anyway, um, 
I didn't want to be one of those guys, you know, because it's been so long yeah, since yeah. I recorded to tape. And when we recorded to tape and then mixed it through a very, very, it's probably one of the rarest mixing consoles in the world. And it's at a studio called East West in Los Angeles. And it's a, a thing called a Trident A range. It's just this big purple thing. It's amazing. And it's just all this ancient technology that's just based on, you know, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. And then we mixed it to tape and it was just, but we simultaneously put the, the two track onto the digital mm. as well as the analog. And I was just like, oh, I hate this. I'm one of those guys now. I, oh, the tape does sound better. It does sound better. And then we got the vinyl, the pressing of the vinyl and the CD. And we were going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, listening to them. Just like, the vinyl does sound better. I can't believe this. You know this. it's coming. You know, like at some point, it's at some coming. point in the next couple of months, you're going to open your back door and be like, hey, you kids, get out of my yard. <laughs> I know, man. I'm like, I know, I know. I'm, I, you know, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> some, I turned... I, some every once in a while, I will catch myself being an old man, you know, like really being an old man. Like, you know, I like get out of a chair and I'll hike my pants back up, you know, with my thumbs, you know, and I go on. I'm like, oh my God, you know, that's not a bad thing, though, you know. Um, I mean, it's because you, you, you've lived, you, you've had this interesting story, right? You know, and you're at a moment right now where it feels like I want to touch back down into that in a really good place. You know, and the journey that got you there brought you through some really turbulent times. Yeah. You know, the, um, I mean, I know you came up in Buffalo, um, four older sisters from what I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just me and the dog. We're the only guys in the house and we're both sitting there going, what the hell is going on? You know, but yeah, it was, it was rowdy. I think, I mean, um, I, I still feel more comfortable with women than men, just like, in general, because I grew up in that situation. And I, you know, I still talk to most of my sisters almost every day. You know, I mean, I'll talk to one of them almost every day, you know, because over the last 10 years, I mean, they've been such a big help to me, you know, like emotionally in that settling a lot of old business and, uh, that I had, didn't have a lot of recollection of, and, you know, I was lucky that I had people who were older than me to talk to me about those things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nice to be that close also. I know um, you lost your mom and your dad when you're sort of like in your mid-teens. Yeah, my dad when I was 15, my mom when I was 16. Yeah. Um, did they effectively sort of like become surrogate parents for you in a lot of ways? Or were you at an age where you're, you're kind of on your own at that point? I kind of was, I kind of, I was pretty disenchanted with the neighborhood that I grew up in, you know? I got a lot of crap from people. You know? mm, how so? Well, it was just, it was just very, it was very, it was just really strange. It was just strange. It was like my, my family, my sisters are incredibly strong women. Always were, you know, and they still are now. And, uh, you know, we weren't part of the neighborhood. Like we weren't part of that culture anymore. You know, my sister had an African-American boyfriend. You know, and in 1981, that was, oh my God, that's crazy. You know, so we got a lot of crap from people 
about that. And it's just like, that's so weird, but it did. It, it was weird. And like, you know, so my life was made a little difficult by some of the neighborhood thugs. <laughs> and uh, I was anxious to get out of there. It was like, it was October. And um, it's just really rainy, cold Buffalo fall, you know? And then I just remember feel, like feeling like I couldn't get warm when my mom died. No matter how many blankets I put on myself, I couldn't get warm. But then I said, no, man, you, you have no choice. You have to move on. I mean, I was 16. I was like, what am I going to do? So my sisters helped me out and I got my own place. And um, I didn't have a lot of money. And I did, I did some things that I'm not exactly proud of, you know, but uh, now it's legal in 35 states. <laughs> you know? They put kids like me out of business. But, um, you know. It was an adventure and I moved into this, the neighborhood near the, one of the universities in Buffalo. And I just started meeting all these characters, you know, they, they were older than me and I met them and I had a small group of musician friends, you know, and we would just play and play and play and we we're constantly, it was very incestuous. Everybody was sort of, he played with him that night and we all went to this way and it was just, you know, we were all experimenting with different kinds of music and stuff. None of them went to the school that I went to. I went to a vocational training school to be a plumber. Mm. And um, I really should have went to art school, but I didn't. And, um, and I'm happy that I got my diploma in plumbing. I, I really am. I'm very proud of that. It's an amazing, I, could, I, I would have to go back to school from the beginning again. But just the fact that I can, I can fix little things around the house is, is awesome to me. And I yeah. think it's therapeutic. It helps, helps you stay grounded. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting also, right? Because I think a lot of people look at plumbing as like, well, it's a particular profession that does a particular type of thing. But it's actually, it's, it's a trade. It's a craft. It is a true, I mean, especially yes. I, I remember spending summers and like building houses and renovating and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, it is a true, I mean, some of the plumbers who were on location with, were true artists. Oh yeah. It would blow my mind. It's like complex problem solving. And when you look at the creation, like if you pulled what they created out of a house or a structure and just put it in a gallery somewhere, oh people, my God. people would be like, that is insanely cool. Yes. It's very cool. And you know, what's beautiful about it. It's gravity. It's all just gravity. And it's like, that amazes me. Like, yes, of course, there's a ton of technology involved now and everything, everything's computerized in that. But a basic plumbing system is just based on gravity and pressure. And it's beautiful in its simplicity. And, but the mathematics that you have to sit and study is crazy. I mean, you can't be stupid and be a plumber. That's, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and it is amazing. And, and the, But, you know, our, our society went through this, like, you know, this 30 or 40 year period where it was just like, oh, you got to go to college, got to go to college, got to go to college. And a lot of my friends who wound up in the building trades have done better than people who, you know, went and got master's degrees. No offense to anybody who wants to go to college, but I think I think that the, the building trades, and I know that guy, Mike Rowe, the dirty jobs yeah. guy, he's very into that. You know, and, and I agree with them because it's a way for someone with a high school diploma and, so, and some training and some smarts to 
get into an upper middle class position. And that's, that's not easy these days, you know? Yeah. I mean, we, we have got, we've definitely gone through this window where knowledge work was sort of like elevated to say like, well, the only legitimate work is knowledge work. And the only reason somebody wouldn't be doing that is because they don't have it in them. Yeah. So they have to default to these other things. It's like, no, actually, you read this book, um, you'd probably love it. It's called Shop Class as Soul Craft. <laughs> this that guy who was awesome. like, he, I think he went to MIT from what I remember. He was you know, doing a think tank type of thing. And he's like, this isn't doing it for me. He ends up going to some small town, I think it was New Hampshire or something like that, finds this grizzled old guy who could listen to vintage motorcycles and just by listening, know exactly what was wrong with them and wow. starts to study and like becomes his, his student effectively. And then just gives up this whole complex high flying knowledge, you know, type of world to just hunker down and work on these old bikes. And it's like the happiest person on the planet, you know? And I think we definitely, we devalue that in a way, but when we do, I think we really, we not only do we label people as not good enough when they're extraordinary people, but also we stop ourselves from going back to that physical interaction and physical creation space that I think. So many of us miss. I, I agree. I mean, there is so much creative power that goes into designing a home, building a home, you know, putting a plumbing system into a building, just, you know, a solar panel. I mean, you know, putting solar panels up, you know, and uh, just it's amazing because they're beautiful pieces of art at some point stage of its creation, it's on a drawing table and it's beautiful. And I, I studied mechanical drawing and, you know, drafting and that kind of thing. And, uh, it's beautiful just getting, having the tools to get the perspective on things correctly and following a formula for this many inches equals, <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's, it's crazy. And you have to do doing cutaway views of like the inside of a wall and like, and uh, it was very technical drawing. It's just, it's, it's exciting. Like when I, I just remember this one drawing that we had of an oil refinery and it was a cutaway view and just staring at it and just being blown away. Like that took so much creativity. I mean, maybe from a different part of the brain, but as much creativity, you know, as writing, you know, a symphony yeah, or whatever. I mean, and, and that's what, what I was thinking as you're just sharing that is, you know, I wonder if you have any sense that the fact that you actually went and, and you study plumbing and, and you study mechanical drawing has any influence in the way that you view the process, the structure, the, the expressive side of, of music, of songwriting, of putting together yeah things and vice versa like does the songwriting does the musicality actually then affect the way you think about form and structure and sort of like physical spaces yeah i mean it's all interrelated and my mind i i work i'm off on tangents all the time which is a bit of a handicap but yeah you know i mean growing up and learning those skills you know it definitely it it, it has an influence in a way because i allow myself to, you know, get on my artist chair, you know, and like play and wait for the muse and blah, 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 you know, and, and it's great when she comes, but she doesn't always come. 
you know, then you got to get down and, and, and you got to roll up your sleeves and start, start swinging with a hammer. And there are different points. I mean, I did, I did a song for a, a, a Disney movie. I think it was only, like 20 years ago already. It was a movie called Treasure Planet. I wrote two songs for the film. So I learned, I, I, they brought me into the project when it was still like in uh, pencil sketches. Mm. And they started talking about these characters. This is a huge team of people, dozens of people. And I've never seen people work so harmoniously in my life, you know? And there's a certain period of time where you don't judge, don't judge. Let it all just come out. Dare to yeah. suck. Dare to suck. You know, it's gotta like go there. you got to go there. But at some point in time, it's like you got to, you know, somebody's got to like tap you on the shoulder and wake you up. And then you, and then you got to, you know, you got to start tightening screws and actually crafting something. So it's like you have this sort of nebulous artistic process going on in your brain. And then eventually to make it come to fruition, you have to apply some sort of skill and discipline to it. You know? Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 
25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. You know, it's it's interesting also that part of what you become known for is um, really experimenting with alternative tunings in your work. You know, yeah. guitar is your, your, your primary jam. And it sounds like from the earliest days, you know, for you, which kind of ties into this, it's sort of like, okay, so let me think differently even about this one thing. You know, okay, so I have a yeah. guitar in my hands. I have this one instrument. And there's a standard way that 99.9% of people play it. But something uh-huh. in your brain is saying, but that's not necessarily the constraints that I feel I have. And let me just completely mess around with them. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> it really is fun. Do you play the guitar? I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's just you, one night. I don't, I don't know if you, what you indulge in, but you know, just indulge in a little of something that you enjoy and, uh, and then just sit on your sofa and just. Just start unwinding and winding strings up and you'll break one and, but, and just strum and see what, see what feels good at that moment. And it's almost like you got to relearn how to play the instrument, every tuning you use. Um, there's some musical term for it, but there's, uh, I thought it, you know, I did it out of necessity because I was in a three piece band. And I always hated when a guitar player would go into a solo or something like that. And then everything dropped out yeah. except the bass and the drums. And I'm like, you know, and when you go in the studio, you play the rhythm guitar behind it and then you put the solo on top. But but I didn't really, I didn't want to really do that either. But I just started twisting things. It's It was basically there to fill space hmm. so that I could create these droning kind of, things that would go through the whole song. And that's something that I, I, I really got from Bob Mould, you know, from Who's Could Do. Yeah. And I thought, I'm like, man, listen to that. And you create these overtones and harmonics. It's just insane. Like what, am I hearing that? Is that, is that what's really going on there? And even Bob Mould, I love his guitar playing. He's such an underrated guitar player. But man, he creates this sonic landscape and it's jagged on the edges, but there's so much beauty. Like if you just listen a little deeper, there's so much harmonic complexity and beauty in what he's doing. Yeah. And that's like, it It almost sounds like there's more than one person playing sometimes. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, which I guess is part of what you're talking about. Like when you got a power trio and, you, you know, the one guitar drops into a lead if yeah. there isn't something else to like, to give it some spaciousness, you know, like it's yeah. sort of like, okay, so everything kind of, it gets thin. Yeah. But, but then you look at guys like, you know, like people have been doing this for a long time, like Robert Johnson, right? Uh-huh. Um, Zepp, 
Yeah. Oh, everybody. When I learned that, right? <laughs> when I learned about Joni Mitchell and Jimmy Page and you know Robert Johnson and you know all these people, uh, Stephen Stills, another yeah. guy. I felt vindicated <laughs> because I felt like I was cheating. You know? Yeah. And you're like, um, no, but I was the, just the trying best to of fill the best. I've done this. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, that's really cool. And so necessity is the mother of invention. And um, I only had one guitar. I couldn't afford another one. So what I did was I was I was hanging out in a music store and I saw banjo tuners hmm. and uh, a thing called a hip shot. Right? This is so wonky. Nobody's going to care. But I put banjo tuners and a hip shot on my guitar so I could lower the E string to a D. I could tune the B string up to a C and tune the E string up to an F sharp. So I could do all these other tunings while I was playing. I could just wham and then drop it down to a D and drone that out and play a little solo on the top, you know, but things like that, you know? Yeah. Which simultaneously makes for a, an amazing sonic experience and drives anyone who wants to try and figure out how to play what you're playing completely bad at you. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know what's amazing <laughs> to me? And I, I don't do this a lot, but occasionally um, someone will send me a video of like a 12 year old girl playing one of my songs yeah. in a standard tuning better than I can play it. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, I got to get a hold of this kid. I got to, she's got to show me how to play the song the right way. You know? Yeah. That's amazing. Um, you build on that. You start to build with Robbie. I mean, Goo Goo Dolls sounds like it starts out really more of like a punk vibe. Eventually you know, it evolves to your sound becomes more melodic. Interesting also that, you know, in the beginning, I've heard you share how Robbie was really more of the front man and it took yeah. a number of years for you to sort of, you know, like write more and then also like be more front and center. And I've also heard you describe yourself as kind of like quieter, more like in a personal and a private setting, you know, like yeah, not that person, but there's something that happens to you when you get on stage where when you oh, yeah. step out there, it's almost like you're stepping into a different persona. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Because, you know, there's a lot of fear. Still, I've been doing this for 30 years or whatever. And, and uh, I stand on the side of that stage. And I'm like, you know, Robbie is a natural born entertainer. He's, he's the guy that comes out and goes, ta-da! And, you know, I have to force myself to try and keep up with that. Because... Sometimes I just want to play my guitar and sing. And, but then I'm like, you know, I also truly, truly believe in the work ethic of what I'm doing. And I think growing up in Buffalo had a lot to do that. And early on, you know, I had my mentors that were from the local music business. Yeah. And, um, and them saying to me, look, at the time it was like, somebody spends 10 bucks to come and see you. You better give them a show, kid. And it's like, yeah, I get it. I get it, you know? And, and you know, I, I always got sort of put off by, I'm not naming names, you know, bands that I've been on tour with. And uh, that come and sitting at a bar with, with one of them and just, you know, I'm just whining about having to play this massive multi-Grammy winning 10 million album sales song that bought you a house in the Hollywood Hills and you're going to bitch about playing that, you know, 
That's the no. buffalo in you. <laughs> I know it is. Right? You can only be so pretentious when you're from Buffalo. <laughs> but it just, it just, it struck me as being like, wow, you ungrateful son of a bitch. <laughs> like, like, you know, and like I get, sometimes I get, I get the little bit of a sigh before I play Iris, just like, fuck, it's the only song anybody knows. And then, and then I'm like, shut up, quit feeling sorry for yourself. That's what they paid to see. Go give it to them, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and that's the way it should be. It's a contract. It's like an unwritten contract between you and your audience. And I, it's interesting because Robbie's very, very comfortable on stage. And I like being on stage and I can, I can, I can switch into that personality or that persona, whatever. Yeah. But as soon as, as soon as I walk off the stage, it's like this, like, it's like somebody letting the air out of a balloon, (laughs) you know, and, and I don't, I don't party anymore. And it's, and you know, you know, so I'm, so I'm drinking my club soda and I call home, you know, the real world awaits, you know? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's the, it's sort of like the sweet spot of, you know, you're brought up and, you know, like a sort of like in, in a town that values hard work, that's kind of hard scrabble in mm-hmm. a blue collar environment. And, but also, you know, having just acquired a sensibility, having a, like more towards the introverted side of the, the, the spectrum. I know that sort of, it was eye opening to me when a friend of mine actually sort of explained, Hey, you know, the, the difference between extroverts and introverts isn't that, you know, like one is a raging party animal and the other one isn't. It's both are social and are not, are you know, an introvert is not an antisocial person. It's just Mm-mm. being around large numbers of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be really energizing in the moment, but when you're done, you're empty. Yeah. Whereas an extrovert yes. Yes. goes to that exact same experience to fill up. Yeah. Kind of weird. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of like one of the things that I always thought about was, you know, because we came up playing in front of like five people getting in a filthy van, you know, and just traveling around. We did that for almost 10 years before we got a break. And then all of a sudden you get this quote unquote hit and you start selling records. And then all of a sudden, you know, the world is changing around you and it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. Especially if you're a shy ish person, cause I can be a very shy ish person to people. And, and I, I don't get that close to too many people that started more. It, it kicked into a higher gear after we had gotten like a, a couple of hit songs yeah. because I, I started to feel like, well, where, where were all these pretty girls before I had a hit song? Where's what? Wait a minute. Who are all these people that all of a sudden are inviting me to parties and stuff? I have no idea who these people are, whatever. So I declined every invitation and I, you know, stuck with who I knew, kind of circled the wagons and, you know, and that was at the point I was like, and and this is, I, I really, honest to God, man, honest to God, I feel like after you write your first hit song, everyone around you is applauding. Oh my God, that's amazing. That's amazing. It's as if you won the lottery and everyone is going, oh my God, John, you won the lottery. Do it again. And I'm like, uh. The pressure of that is insane. Well, that's where the roots 
aside from the genetic predisposition, that's where the roots of my own addiction sort of started in fear, man. Just at that point, I was terrified because I didn't know who to trust because nobody tells you the truth when you're really successful in that situation. You hang on to the people who say, John, yeah, you look fat in those pants. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like whatever, you know, because you, so many people wind up with these, I don't know what you call them. What's a good word? Just like yes men around them. And some people thrive on it because they're narcissists, you know? Although, I mean, I guess I'm a narcissist too, because, or somewhat of a narcissist because I want people to love my music. I, I have no shame about that. I'm not going to completely flip who I am. You know, I stopped playing punk rock music because I didn't feel it anymore because I was a 24 year old man at that point, 25 year old man. And to me, punk rock is kid music. It's, it's what you do. You know, it's like uh, Joe Strummer said, you know, turning rebellion into yep. money, you know? And it's like, and Bob Mould, there's a great Bob Mould quote. They asked him, is punk dead? Well, I hate that question. You know, it's not dead as long as there's a, a 13 year old boy. Yeah. With the, you know, wearing a pair of chucks. Totally. You got a funny haircut. And it's like, but Bob Mould said, Bob Mould said, no, punk's not dead. You can buy it at Kmart. It's like, yeah, man, that was great. There suddenly became, well, when punk rock became arena rock and then ultimately stadium rock, you know, it was very formulaic. I think a lot of the, a lot of it is very formulaic. Um, and it's, it's pop music. I'm not shit talking any band. No, no, because, I totally get like, it. I love, I love all that stuff. You know? Right. But, but eventually, you know, I feel like anything that lasts long enough that starts as counterculture becomes the culture. It does. And that was a weird thing. Like when there was a guy named Kevin Weatherly who used to run K-Rock in Los Angeles. And that was the most powerful radio station in the universe. You, you know, you got a song played on K-Rock that became your single. And you went and made the video and you kissed everyone's ass you had to. And the trajectory was very straight. Then you started getting ads. After K-Rock added you, everybody was going to add you. And that radio game was how I defined my success for a lot of years. You know, did I crack the top 20 on that? Yeah. What did we debut at? What is it? It's just, it's nerve wracking. And now because radio is so consolidated and the, the, the programming of radio, I mean, it's these like, yeah, it's a different beast. That's, That's I mean, a different beast. It's, it's, like algori it's algorithm-based rather yeah. than humor. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not, I don't, I mean, I know that my songs will always get played, you know, on the, I, I don't, it's not an oldies dish, but like, you know, like hot, or like AC radio or hotty, whatever. I'm in recurrent rotation a lot of places. And I hear one of my songs every single day, you know, I'll be in the supermarket or the Home Depot or wherever I am and I'll, I'll hear one and then I kind of cringe a little and then I want <laughs> I'm just like, Hey, Hey, you're lucky. Okay. You're right. I am lucky. And, um, but you know, it, it does, it becomes the mainstream at some point. And a lot of times the people, especially, you know, writers and, you know, people who are in, but out, they, they shit on the bands. People feel like they have the right to shit on you if you have a little success. You know, and they think like you automatically did something 
wrong and different to get that way. And I remember being that way myself because I saw you too when I was 14 or 15. I saw them play at a theater and uh, I was just like, man, these guys are amazing. And then it was like, what? Wait a minute. Hold on. Now they're on the radio. Now they're, uh, now they're playing at the arena. What, what the hell's going on? Screw those guys. They sold out, you know, and it's so easy to dismiss that. But, you know, a lot of times artists are thrust into those positions through no fault of their own, other than creating something that other people found appealing, you know? Yeah. And I mean, once you land there, it's, <laughs> I think some people are, are, you know, they're equipped to handle it, but it, it's almost like it, it feels like that is the rarer person, especially if it happens earlier in life. Remember we had, we had um, Frampton on a little, a little bit back and he was sharing how when Frampton comes alive, comes out, and then he's on the cover of Rolling Stone, that classic mm-hmm. Scavulo shot, like topless. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh my, you're like, this is the biggest thing ever. And behind the scenes, he's kind of melting down because mm-hmm. he's now become something he didn't want to be. And now he's got everyone telling him, this is what you got to keep being. And this yeah. is what your next album has to be. And, uh-huh. oh, and you have to now try and repeat what you just did, which was like make the yeah. biggest selling live album in history. Yeah. And you're, you know, he's in his twenties. And so, I mean, you know, that's, I got to imagine yeah. anyone who has, you know, like you guys eventually you're gigging around for a long time, but then mid nineties hit and you've got these series of things where you got huge things. And it's almost like, how does any human being who's sentient and who's feeling and who's empathic deal with that, you know, and still come out like without going through some sort of trough of sorrow or window of darkness. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of a sudden everything that I wanted, I had, and I was terrified, miserable, you know, uh, you know, so they say, go to therapy, go to therapy, so I go to therapy. And then they're like, here, take these, you'll feel better. So you take those and you kind of feel better. And then it just becomes this slippery slope of, well, I can't sleep. Well, take these. And then, then you don't have those pills anymore and you can't sleep. So you go and get those pills. And you start drinking more and, you know, it's very strange because the question that I always asked myself was, well, who, who's going to be here when, when all the fun stops, who's going to be here at the party when everybody else is left and they're actually going to help me clean up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that was tough. And I had to, I had, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I almost lost everyone in my life and, you know, damn near killed myself, you know, and it was, and it's such a cliched story, but it was, it's the, the fact that people, people feel like they own a little piece of you or they know something about you. It's like, yeah, it's cool. It's, it's nice to be appreciated, but, but you don't know me, you know? And, uh, you know, people talk all kinds of smack all the time. It's just easy to talk smack. It's so easy to just make yourself feel better just by, I, I mean, I've done it and we've all done it. 
ah, screw that guy. I could have done that better. You know, it's. Yeah. But, but I think everyone's been through their version of that, but a lot of people, yeah. when it happens, it's not public. You know, when it happens, there's not, you know, there's not the face that you have to then wear to a mass number of people and a brand you have to represent and these these expectations you have to meet. And then, you know, my sense is it's different, you know, and it's harder when you fall. Um, And at the same time, it's not to say that there's not a stunning gratitude and appreciation for everything that comes along with it. Absolutely. You know, yes. Like you can feel that coming from you. And at the same time, you know, I know you've, you've, you've shared very openly about you effectively reaching this moment where you dropped to your knees and it was 2014 ish. And you're like, all right, so this yeah. is either going to kill me pretty soon, or I need to finally figure this out. Yeah. You know what I realized, I mean, cause I, at that point, I mean, I was at that point, like around 2014, I've been trying to get sober for me, you know, 10 years and I get a month, three weeks, two days, a couple hours, you know, and it just kept going and going and, you know, um, and then finally I had to, I had to, I mean, I found myself in such a dangerous effed up situation in a blackout and waking up from a blackout in a really weird situation (laughs) is it's okay. You'll just (laughs) like, my situation, I think, is hysterically funny in retrospect, where I woke up and, from my blackout, but and what was going on, and um, but but um, it terrified me. It terrified me. I'm like, this shit's getting dangerous. This is getting dangerous, dude. You know, and my wife was was like ready to bail. You know, and she was like, I don't want to leave you because I love you. I can't take this anymore. You know, and she said the sweetest thing to me when I had six years. She she gave me a, my coin for six years. And uh, she said, you haven't made me cry in six years. And I was just like, oh, wow. And that's when you realize where you belong, when you're home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a nice moment. Yeah. Can't even imagine. Ugh. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I mean, along the way also, you know, six years in, um, almost seven now, I guess, for you at this point. And, uh, but one day at a time still, right? And uh, <laughs> yeah, um, married your dad now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I got to imagine that, that um, the decision, like that decision and then being a dad, um, has given you a different perspective on everything. Um, I, I think it has, you know, it, I mean, it, it definitely, it softens your, your heart and makes you worry less about your, you know, the way you are perceived by other people because you have this tiny little genius who just adores you. Do you have daughters? I have a daughter. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, like, I'm looking oh. at your face and, I, and I'm just like, I know that feeling. Yeah. I know that smile. That's like full body. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, it's got eyes full of tears and a Hot Wheels car with a wheel that fell off. And like, you just feel so like so powerful when you go, come here, honey, let me fix that for you. Pop the little wheel back on. They just think you're the greatest guy in the world, man. You know, I mean, I love that. I'm going to miss that. But, you know, she's my silver lining from the pandemic, you know, because I've watched her grow. I was literally away from her for half her life, you know, and uh, to get to spend this much time with her. And by the way, I, I, once again, I don't know how this happened, but I wound up living in a house with five women again. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my God, I need some testosterone. I need to go it's like, your destiny. shoot a gun or something. You can't it, fight it. It's your destiny. I can't fight it. And I, but I love it. I love them. I love, I love that my daughter has a tribe of strong, smart women around her, including my sisters. And, um, and, and Nona lives here. Grandma lives here and her two 
cousins live here and, you know, and, and, uh, with us and, and she's learning from them, you know, and, and I love that. I love that, you know, but I try to balance it out, throwing her around, wrestling with her, you know, doing that whole thing. She's such a girl. God, (laughs) No, I was with a little boy and her. Uh, last weekend and they had like this ski resort, but they had an indoor pool and the whole thing. So we took them in the pool and then about 15 minutes into like letting the kids jump into the pool. And then I grab them, put them back up and they jump back in. This little boy takes a swing at me. (laughs) (laughs) And then he asked me why I had long hair, like a woman. I was like, what is going on here, kid? He's like, he's, you know, it's, it's like, he wants some, he's like challenging me. (laughs) <laughs> and i'm just like i love you lily because <laughs> she just loves me man there's no 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 challenging <laughs> the dominance you know i mean she'll manipulate the hell out of me but you know you you get really good at at sort of bobbing and weaving the manipulation you know with girls i enjoy it and i'm just like so what if i spoil her a little bit yeah you know? When you think about, I mean, you know, over the last year, just the time that you may want to have with her. Um, and then you think about, you know, okay, so as we emerge from whatever this window is, you know, you, you start to head back into the studio and eventually back on the road for certain windows of time. Do you have any sense that you'll make decisions differently based on just this last year or so that you've had? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange. It was like, I, I mean, I grew up insanely poor like you know my parents worked but we always had to have food stamps and sometimes a little help from the pantry and they were they were good people they were good people but they were flawed you know like like all of us they were flawed maybe more deeply than some but um i will do everything in my power to make sure that i'm strong and healthy for that girl because i started so late and I don't ever want her to feel the things that I felt when I became completely untethered and left to my own devices. <laughs> as far as the touring situation goes, yeah, she's going to be coming with me a lot more. A, because she loves it. And B, you know, traveling is best education, right? Maybe not necessarily with a rock band, but I mean, you know, it's not like we're having wild parties on the bus anymore. And, you know, she loves it. And I love being with her because she's totally honest. She doesn't know how to lie yet. Although she's learning. She's learning, you know, like just to cover her ass. She, she'll know, <laughs> you know, but I just adore her in, in every way. And just, I see myself in her sometimes. So like personality, I'm like, Really? Like, is this genetic? I'm like, Jesus. And I'm running down my list of character defects. And I'm like, oh, God, spare her that one. <laughs> you know? Please like, like don't let that par- happen to right. her. Every parent has like those lists like, ooh, that was a good one. Ooh, not that one. <laughs> not that one, no. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. You That's know. beautiful. Um, feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So yeah. hanging out here in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? 
to have the courage to be honest with yourself and not worry about the outcome. You know? I mean, I could elaborate a little more, but I don't want to. I'll just screw it up, you know? Like, but we got this thing hanging on the wall in the kitchen. This is just a big poster. It's made out of newspaper. And it says, work hard and be nice to people. Generally, it's not bad. It's not a bad sort of first step to leading a good life, you know? I mean, there's so much. I mean, you've been in this for so long and like you're studying, like you're a student of having a good life. What is that like? It's amazing. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really, it's kind of breathtaking to be in this project for years now to have mm-hmm. you know, had the opportunity to speak to so many different people from so many walks of life, people who, you know, are a week away from, you know, like hand to mouth and people who are at the top of industry, art, science, mm-hmm. politics, and to see the shared humanity, to see sort of like the shared values when they really right. just get down to it, mm-hmm. you know, it's amazing, you know. It's it's incredible because I mean, to me that you do this, but I, you know, I have to ask you the question: Is your life better? What was the best takeaway from anyone? Like you just you had a paradigm shift when someone said something to you in an interview. Um, I mean, there must be hundreds of. Yeah, them. there are. It's really hard to isolate one, but you know, there are moments that have stayed with me that either because it was something deeply personal to me that somebody gave language to, mm-hmm. or just because it was a reminder that there, but for God's grace, go I. Mm. Or it was a reframe on what success was. So, like when I producer Lindsay, who you know you you've met, r- reminds me that uh, um, the person I tend to refer to the most in conversation is Milton Glaser, who was on the show years ago and passed away last year. And mm-hmm. for so many different reasons, for the choices he he made, he's this iconic designer, designed the I Heart NY logo and that mm-hmm. classic Dylan poster with the rainbow hair. You know, yeah. Um, his his work has touched so many different people, and he kept designing and working, um, really like right up until the very end when he was ninety one. Um, so there were a lot of lessons in his life and the choices, the things that he said no to. You know, he showed up and. He kept a small but hyper prolific studio in New York City. He didn't start a massive agency, which he could have. He said no to all of these things that would have taken him away from the work. He was very clear on the work that filled him up. And he said no to what a lot of people would have been so tempted to say yes to. Sure. In the name of being able to do the work and to be able to, to spend time with people. He just couldn't get enough of his, you know, uh, wife being one of those people, and um, and he said something to me also which resonated, which was he knew why he was here from the time he was six years old, and he said, "I wow. I, I make things that move people," and that was very personal to me because that's not everybody. But when he said that, I was like, my DNA started vibrating because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "That's that's, that's amazing. Me. That's me." Really, you know, and what's interesting is like I I sense some of that in you too, you know. I sense a lot of that in you because there's 
there's like a, a maker instinct in you that crosses, whether it's drawing, whether it's plumbing, whether it's music, like there's something that is a like a fierce creative impulse and something where you do it in part for yourself, but also because when it moves people, it adds to sort of like the the experience of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. It really, truly does. That's a beautiful story, by the way. That's a really beautiful story. I mean, you know, <laughs> I've been reflecting a lot about what what is going on in our society and the, the frustration and the violence and the, I mean, where we are at. I mean, we were a hair's breadth away from a coup d'etat. <laughs> and I'm not getting political. I'm not saying anything right or left, but at the same time, it's like, what are the forces that are deeply behind this, this discontent, you know? Are we ever going to be back to, I don't know, you know, and I'm, I'm on the fence. I, I, I blow with the wind now, you know, uh, to see what, to see what's happening. But, you know, I just feel like somehow a lot of people in this country, and I think a lot of it is to do with the concentration of wealth in such very few hands and people not being able to be part of trade unions labor unions, whatever. I feel like people are losing their sense of purpose because I truly believe that work gives your life purpose, you know? And sometimes you may not have your dream job and then you have to find the purpose in your work, you know? I mean, I had a lot of, I mean, I used to fry peanuts <laughs> in, a, in a vat of oil for a living, you know? And I had to try to find the purpose in it. You know, there just seems to be a rush amongst certain people to just make humans obsolete. It's just like, just because we can do it technologically and we're that advanced. I think technology has outpaced human evolution. I mean, it's just, how are we going to deal with it? Yeah, I think we're on the precipice of a lot of really tough issues right now. Tough issues. You think we're going to be okay? I do. I'm oddly hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm at, you know, like at the end of the day, you know, like I'm a New York Jew who it was, <laughs> is, is not necessarily <laughs> wired for optimism, like with all things. It's, you know, like, well, I'm a so Polish like, Catholic from Buffalo and I'm the right, same so you way. Get it, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. But, but there is something that about me where I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm hopeful because all the things that are separating us and all the things that are challenging us right now approach differently and used differently mm -hmm. can become tools for rehumanizing tools for advancement tools for growth mm -hmm. um, tools for connection so it's like it's all there mm -hmm. and it's all available to us and one of my fascinations is like what switches do we need to flip for us to start to use them not for division and replacement but for connection and elevation. Wow. You got to write that down, bro. <laughs> we got <laughs> it really, on tape. So it's all yeah, good. <laughs> man. You got to write that down. That was. Whew. Anyway. anyway I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Uh, my pleasure. I'm man. really glad. Thank you so much, man. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversation we had with Joan Osborne. 
about her incredible life in music and activism. You'll find a link to Joan's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.